Bonjour, Anin. Hello. My name is Serene Fox, and this is Into the Anthropocene, the podcast where we talk to smart and interesting people tackling one of the most urgent issues of our time, human impact on the planet. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Mississaugas of New Credit and the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee nations. In our first episode, I spoke with the artists behind Anthropocene, Edward Bertinsky, Jennifer Bachual, and Nicolas de Pensier. Yeah, for me, the ambition of the Anthropocene Project is not to provide answers to these incredibly complex questions because, A, who are we? It's a very unique perspective. The ambition of the Anthropocene Project is to raise all of these questions. If I can add, by I think by not being accusatory but trying to be revelatory, um, it's, it allows an opening. So that the, the goal is to can we make this concept something that everybody understands and also then reflects on their own participation in why it is real. It's time to dive into the Anthropocene from the scientific perspective. What are the top 10 things you need to know now about the Anthropocene? We asked three science experts to weigh in. My name is Jan Zalishevich. I'm a geologist and paleontologist at the, the University of Leicester in the UK. And I'm part of and chair indeed the Anthropocene Working Group of the International Commission on Stratigraphy. So my name is Colin Waters. I'm secretary of the Anthropocene Working Group. Um, I'm uh, currently a, a honorary professor at the University of Leicester in England. Um, and up until last year, I was a field geologist working for the British Geological Survey. So I'm, I'm Di Events. I'm a writer and broadcaster. And I've been looking at the Anthropocene for the last few years. Gaia's being a bit modest. She spent two years traveling the world, speaking to everyday people, dealing with our changing planet. Out of that came her award-winning book, Adventures in the Anthropocene. Okay, let's get to it. Number 10 is the word itself. Anthropocene. What the heck is it? I know this is definitely a question I had coming into this. I wasn't even sure how to say it. Here's Jan, then Gaia. What is the Anthropocene? Well, the Anthropocene is a relatively recent idea, uh, which really started in the year 2000. Um, that humans have impacted the um, the world so much that they've not just affected its its uh, ecology, um, you know, and its its history and and, and so on, uh, but it's also uh, it impacted upon the the geology uh, of the world uh, to actually uh, change the geology and uh, to the extent that a new geological time period, um, the Anthropocene, has been suggested. Uh, to mark uh, these large-scale earth changes. What we're having now is the Anthropocene, and what that means is the age of humans. And it means that we have become a dominant force on the planet, and we are now in charge of changing the atmospheric conditions. We're changing the climate. We're changing biodiversity. We're changing coastlines. We're doing the sorts of things that, uh, that, that geology has done in the past or that asteroids have done. So it's a fundamental, enormous, profound concept, really. 
So this new epoch, this human epoch, when does it begin? For some geologists and scientists, it begins 60 to 70 years ago. Here's Jan. Uh, our best guess at, at the, um, you know, for a practical, usable boundary uh, that uh, geologists and other scientists can use um, is around uh, the, the middle of the, the 20th century. Uh, so sometime in the early 1950s. Um, and that coincides with um, you know, a lot of large-scale changes uh, to the Earth system, uh, which can be seen geologically. You know, they, they, they provide um, phenomena which can appear in strata, which mm-hmm. is important to geologists. Okay, before we get much further, we need to address a very important question related to the Anthropocene. How are we supposed to pronounce it? You'll hear Colin first, then Gaia, and then Jan. <laughs> um, I think that depends on what you're on. I say Anthropocene, but that doesn't make it right. Oh, I think the consensus for how to pronounce it is Americans pronounce it with a stress on the first syllable. So they, they call it the Anthropocene, um, whereas Brits pronounce it Anthropocene. And I'm not sure that there is any particularly correct word to pronounce Anthropocene or Anthropocene or Anthropocene. I've also heard, you know, from, from different colleagues, we leave that free and easy, you know, and, and we'll see how it develops. You might hear me say many things. Anthropocene, Anthropocene, Anthropocene. I'm still figuring it out. So... If you go and open up a geology textbook right now, it will tell you that we're in the Holocene. Number nine on our list is the Holocene. Because you can't talk about the Anthropocene without the Holocene. Here's Colin. The Holocene is, is the official term for the geological time interval we're living in now. Um, it's since the last ice age, the last 11,000 years or so. Um, and it's sort of considered to be a time when Humanity has prospered on the planet. It's a time of, of stability, really, of, of climate. We've, we've managed to um, develop our cities and our agriculture during this period of time. So, if the Holocene is so great, then why try to change it? Well, here's what happened, as told by Jan. As, as a term and a concept, um, you know, had been, um, you know, improvised in a way by, the, you know, the, um, the, the great scientist Paul Crutzen, you know, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on, on, on the ozone layer. Um, you know, he came up with the idea of the Anthropocene in, in, in a, at a meeting in the year 2000. He became irritated by talk of, um, you know, um, human change, you know, to the planet in the Holocene period, you know, sorry, the, the Holocene epoch. Uh, and he said, you know, stop, you know, we're, we're no longer in the Holocene, we're in the, and he looked for a word, and he came out with Anthropocene. Dutch chemist Paul Crutzen's declaration was met with a sort of stunned silence. Crutzen's explained that he intended the name as an alarm. The thing is, 18 years after Crutzen's declaration, we're still officially in the Holocene. The Anthropocene is what's called an informal term, which means geologists haven't officially adopted it yet. But whether or not geologists recognize the Anthropocene, 
No one can argue with the fact that we live in an age dominated by humans. That brings us to number eight on our list. Humans have changed the earth. Big time. So humans are impacting the planet in a number of ways. We can see the differences that have occurred since humans have been there. We've, we've created entirely new landscapes, whether these are agricultural landscapes full of monocultures or full of species that have been domesticated. These are new species that don't occur naturally, whether we're talking about wheat, whether we're talking about cows. You know, the wild ancestors of these species have in some cases gone extinct. We don't have oryx anymore, which are the wild ancestors of domestic cows. We've changed landscapes. We've also created artificial landscapes apart from farmland, which are our cities, our roads, our uh, other infrastructure like that. So let's break down geology into a few of its fundamentals. Number seven on our list is time. When we talk about geological time, that's how long planet Earth has existed. The number is enormous, something like 4.5 billion years. It's hard to imagine what that actually means. One way is to think of the entirety of the Earth's existence as a 24-hour clock hanging on a wall. In this scenario, dinosaurs show up at about 10 minutes to midnight, and then we humans emerge around two minutes to midnight, about two million years ago. The Anthropocene? Well, that's just a few seconds, really. I'll let Jan explain. One of the things that's useful is to try and get a, you know, a sense of um, the duration of geological time. It's very hard to get the idea of a, a million years um, in, in your head. If you're a millionaire and you have a, a million dollar bills uh, and put them end to end, uh, they will be 156 kilometers long. Um, um, uh, you know, if you stack them on top of each other, even, uh, they'll be over 100 meters high. Um, uh, now, if you're a, a billionaire, and again, geologists think of billions of years, um, you know, those, the dollar bills you own will be over 100 kilometers high uh, in that sense. The Earth is very, very old. The changes we're making to it now, um, uh, uh, you know, are very new and are taking place exceedingly quickly uh, on this huge time background. Continuing on our theme of Geology 101, number six on our list are rocks and minerals. Here's Jan and then Colin. Rocks and minerals are about as basic to geology you know, as, as you can get. Um, uh, and for many millions of years, indeed billions of years, um, the kinds of rocks and minerals on Earth had stayed roughly the same. Naturally, the planet has a little bit more than about 5,000 natural minerals. Um, and that's been fairly constant over the last billion, billion years or so. So that, that hasn't changed. But what has changed over the last century or two is the number of uh, artificial uh, mineral compounds that we've generated. And, and it's been estimated more than 180,000 180, of these new compounds. You can't call them minerals because minerals, by definition, have to be natural. Um, but they essentially are new minerals. Um, so things like um, tungsten carbide on the tip of your biro, your um, ballpoint pen, um, that's, a, that's a novel uh, compound um, which humans have generated, didn't exist uh, a century ago, and now is 
unbelievably common because there's so many ballpoint pens have been generated. So we're creating new minerals. And as it turns out, we're making new rocks as well. Here's Jan. Uh, in terms of rocks, we've also created new rock types. Uh, uh, the, the most uh, common of these is concrete. Uh, and concrete has been made since Roman times, but only in large amounts um, since the mid-20th century. Um, uh, since when we've created something like half a, um, a trillion tons of concrete, you know, enough for a kilo of concrete for every square meter, you know, of the earth, land and sea. Um, uh, and so these are large scale, you know, planetary scale changes we're making, you know, to the very building blocks, you know, of geology, you know, to rocks and minerals. In geology, strata are layers of rock and soil that contain within them all sorts of stuff that set them apart from other layers. These layers are the basis of the study for an entire branch of geology called stratigraphy. Number five on our list, layers, a.k.a. strata, and the markers or signals they contain. If we think of, of, of the far future, you know, as, as, you know and, and think what, what you know, visiting aliens might find, uh, perhaps even as much as 100 million years in the future, you know, roughly the time that separates us now from the, the dinosaurs of the past, um, then you can expect that the first thing they will do is, if you like, learn to read Earth geology, learn to, to um, uh, analyze the rock strata and convert that into the history of this planet. Some of the things they might find are similar to uh, the layer that modern geologists look at uh, when they study, let's say, the death of the dinosaurs. Uh, they find a particular rock layer, you know, uh, which, um, uh, uh, which includes, let's say, the bones of dinosaurs and other creatures, ammonites and belemnites, you know, the, the animals and plants which you know, formed part of that ancient ecosystem. There'll be a whole lot of things to... Uh, for them to look at, uh, including things which have never appeared on Earth before. Uh, for instance, all of our, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the objects we make, many of them are very robust, very hard-wearing, uh, very fossilizable. You know, like the computer screen I'm just looking at, like the microscope in front of me, you know, even the mug of tea in front of me, the uh, desk, the chair and the carpet. You know, um, all of these things can fossilize. Uh, we've come to call them techno-fossils. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, the human layer in the far future will be full of these weird and, and, and perhaps to them rather wonderful techno-fossils. There are all sorts of different kinds of markers geologists are finding in the Earth's layers that mark a spike. In other words, a huge change in the planet's geological history. One marker is the way we've been moving species across the planet, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. There's no other species that does this, that goes around, you know, distributing the rest of the natural world in the same way that we have done. Normally it takes a tectonic shift um, to, to introduce, you know, like the, the, the crashing together of South America and North American continents that happened. That led to this great um, exchange across, across what is now Panama of North American evolved animals and South American evolved animals. Well, we've done that ourselves in just decades. We've transferred all sorts of animals, sometimes in disastrous ways, and sometimes it's been very useful. You know, chickens are actually um, a useful food for people all over the world, even if they originated in India. 
Basically, so much of what we do, eat, and make is ending up in the strata. Here's Colin. Concrete certainly is something that we would see as being a potential marker for Anthropocene. Plastics as well, on a scale of 300 million tons per year being produced at present. So um, by mass, that's about the same as all the 7 billion humans on the planet being produced in plastic in weight every year. Um, and, and our concerns obviously relate to things like microplastics, which are getting into river systems and into the oceans and, and are producing a quite a, um, a recognizable layer uh, of sediment, um, which, again, demarcates the Anthropocene. Have humans changed geology fundamentally? Number four on our list is the Anthropocene Working Group, and they're examining that very question. After Paul Critson's groundbreaking declaration that we're living in the Anthropocene, people started using the term in official things like scientific papers. But no one had tried to define it. Here's Colin on the beginnings of the group that has set out to define this new epoch. You have all these terms like the Cretaceous and Jurassic, and they all have very specific meanings. So, the International Commission on Stratigraphy governs the geological timescale and all of these meanings. So these, these terms you may have heard and their definitions all are governed by this one body. And, and um, Jan was asked to set up the Anthropocene Working Group in 2009 to really look at the veracity of the term. Was it something that really should be officially defined and if so, how should it be defined? Purposely, Jan developed this working group with quite a diverse uh, level of experience, uh, expertise, I should say, rather than experience. So this, yes, there's lots of geologists like myself, um, but there's also um, there are environmental scientists, climate scientists, soil scientists, there's archaeologists, historians. Um, we've got um, even, even a lawyer as well. You know, so it's, it's not the usual um, group you would expect to be analyzing geological successions. What you may not know is that the concept of Anthropocene and the work of the Anthropocene Working Group are very controversial. Despite all the evidence, here's Jan. It is controversial amongst geologists because these changes have taken place so quickly and in such a short time. So if we take uh, um, uh, the Anthropocene as starting in... in uh, let's say, sometime in the 1950s, uh, that would mean we have an epoch uh, which so far is only about 70 years old. The very brevity uh, of the Anthropocene is is one of the things which makes it controversial. You know, it, it's simply very short in terms of time. There are very senior members of the geological community, like Jan and Colin, who are arguing the evidence of the Anthropocene cannot be ignored but it's a concept that changes the rules of geology and how we think about geological time. Here's Colin. There's a, there's a clear signal happening. Um, it's as prominent, uh, probably as sharp as you'll find with any other geological boundary. Um, so why shouldn't it be classified as a geological boundary? I, I can understand that there's this issue at the timescale. It's, it's, it's the contrary to um, the general public understanding about the length of geological time being fast, some people have argued, well, why don't we just wait? Um, it's, it's, you know, why do we have to make a decision now? It's actually the scale of change that's happened, um, particularly across the mid-20th century, is, is, is vast. Um, the scale, in some cases, is greater than happened at the end of the last ice age. It's important, I think, at this stage to say, 
Let's accept that change has happened and we can define it now. It could be years, decades even, before the Anthropocene is ratified by geologists as an official term. What's for certain is this. Constant change is the new normal. And constant change is number three on our list. Here's Jan. The Earth is now on a different geological trajectory. By geological, I, I mean things like, um, like climate, like sea level, like the kinds of animals and plants that, that surround us, like the, the chemistry of the soils and the rivers and the sea. Um, you know, all of these things uh, are part of the Anthropocene, uh, and they're changing from generation to generation. Humans have changed the world more in the past century than in the past 250,000 years of human history. This immense change has all happened within the living memory of you, your parents, your grandparents. We're a very unusual animal uh, in that we're incredibly adaptive. We've adapted our planet. We, you know, we evolved as a tropical ape, essentially. We should be living somewhere in East Africa, uh, but we don't. We live everywhere on all the continents of the world because we're so adaptive and because we adapt our planet to suit our needs. We've got a very plastic brain. But at the same time, we rely on our planet to do everything for us. You know, we, we can't, we, there is no alternative. Every single resource we use, the air that we breathe, the, the water that we drink, that is what cleans and recycles everything that we use. It's, it's where we get our raw materials for the lives that we lead. And as we change the climate, that is causing enormous problems. So we can't talk about change and how it affects people without acknowledging this, that the kind of change we're seeing in the Anthropocene does not affect all of us on Earth equally. Number two on our list is the inequality of the Anthropocene. And as we change the climate, that is causing enormous problems. But the problems will be felt by different people in different ways around the world. And it's very, it's very unequal, the way that our impacts are being felt. So at the moment, what's happening is people in the richest part of the world, which is generally the industrialized Western world, Europe and uh, North America, they feel the effects through uh, their bank balance. Things get more expensive. Um, they lose things to great storms. They have to move house because they're, you know, they, they happen to be living in a flood zone. These are expensive, and you know, and they can cause distress. But people in the poorest parts of the world are paying with their lives. Um, they're either dying from the effects or they're suffering huge amounts of health problems. Gaia was the editor of the journal Nature when she looked around and saw all sorts of planetary changes taking place. Natural disasters, species extinction, changes in demographics. And there was a lot of scientific data and evidence emerging about all of these changes. But nothing on the people living these changes at the forefront of the Anthropocene. When you live in a, a city like London or, or New York or Sydney or wherever, you're, you're very protected in a way from these changes. It, that, that will change, but at the moment you're pretty protected from them. And I wanted to find out really what it's like to, to live where these changes are happening, you know, live in much, much more closely to the natural environment. And that means the tropics. I set out initially for six months 
to to have a look and see what was out there. I ended up just travelling for two and a half years, um, and it was an extraordinary adventure. So when I was in um, uh, Ladakh, for example, which is which is uh, a part of India on the border of Pakistan and and Tibet and and India, um, the the people there were suffering glacial melt because all the all their water is reliant on meltwater from glaciers and without the glaciers they they didn't have any water i met this retired railway worker who was a quite incredible man and he had this vision had this idea of building an artificial glacier in the shadow of the mountain and he's paroled all the villagers to help do this because it's you know, it was backbreaking work. They had to dig out a ditch. They had to um, rerun meltwater from glaciers far higher up and channel it down into this into this just created area for the glacier. But it worked. You know, it worked. He had a, he made an artificial glacier, and it meant that people came back from Mumbai and people stopped leaving the. the um, this beautiful part of the world and the community could survive for a little bit longer. So why is it important to pay attention to the specific activities of single individuals dealing with the Anthropocene? For Gaia, it's about hope and recognizing our connection, our shared humanity, as the dominant species on this planet. And I think by telling people stories, we can relate. I mean, I can. I mean, these are these are people that I during during the course of meeting them and learning their stories, I, I became you know I became friends with them quite often. Um, and it's you know it's, wherever they live and wherever we live, it's it, we are a part of a shared humanity. We are all living under the same sky that we are warming. <laughs> We're all, um, you know, breathing out the same water vapor droplets that will eventually fall as rain on somebody else's paddy field. You know, um, that's one thing the Anthropocene teaches us very much that we that that certain elements of our of our world are globally shared. There isn't my water and your water. So far, in our top nine, we've dug down into the Anthropocene's many layers and revealed the immense changes that are going on. We're the cause of those changes, and our lives are, and will be, changing with the Anthropocene. What's the number one thing you need to know, need to think about when it comes to the Anthropocene? Number one is the future. What's in store for us, the planet? What can we do? Here's Jan Zalashevich, followed by Colin Waters and Guy Vince. I'm a geologist, I'm not an economist or, a, you know, an urban planner or anything like that. But, you know, I think it's clear that one of the drivers of the Anthropocene, you know, is, is our enormous use of carbon-based fuels. The sooner that we can obtain our energy from alternative sources, the less dramatic the Anthropocene will become. Do you really understand what's happening to the things you're using on a daily basis? Um, and what's the impact of that? So it's an environmental impact as well, but, but also think about how that could actually represent something that accumulates as a, as a geological rock in the future. So 
you know, to what extent has, is your impact on the planet um, being preserved as, as a fossil, in effect? Um, something that in a million years' time, someone's going to come across what you've deposited uh, intentionally or in, unintentionally. You know, are you creating the fossils of the future? Um, so if, you, if you're able to, to think in that context, maybe you, you will reflect upon how big an impact you wish to make on the planet. I think it's important to realise that people alive today will be alive at 2100. Many, many people. And um, my own son will be alive in 2100. I mean, he'll be a fairly old man. He'll be in his uh, 80s. But I think um, there is a general consensus that, you know, humans cause this problem and that we have a responsibility to do something about it. And that we, we, we do have capabilities to do something about it. I'm hopeful, obviously, I have to be, because I've got children who will be living through all this. And, you know, even if I didn't, I'm, um, I do like people. So <laughs> we'll just have to see. We'll have to see what happens. That brings us to the end of the second episode in our series. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. We'll be delving into the question, whose earth is it anyway? and hear from four women working to decolonize the Anthropocene and bring issues of environmental racism to the forefront. You'll hear my talk with scholars Zoe Todd and Heather Davis, co-authors of the paper, Decolonizing the Anthropocene. I think the crucial thing is that we can't talk about a common humanity when the dominant structures governing the planet operate on white supremacy and extraction and exploitation and oppression. Um, you can't say we're all in this together when we aren't. We'll also speak with Inuit author, advocate, and Nobel Prize nominee, Sila Watt-Cloutier. This history of this violence in our communities is now mirroring the violence that we are inflicting upon our planet. The human trauma and planet trauma are one of the same. And Dr. Ingrid Waldron will speak of her work on environmental racism. In Canada, we say that poverty is a determinant of health. We say that racism is a determinant of health. We say that food insecurity and income insecurity and undereducation are determinants of health. These are the social factors that impact one's health. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, featuring the works of Edward Brutinsky, Jennifer Batchwal, and Nicolas de Pensier. The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.